All right, good morning. Y'all ready to dive into God's Word and discover some pretty neat things about Him? Amen. I hope so. It's, uh, I'm excited about today as I've been studying on this all week. I just, God amazes me more and more, never ceases to. There's nothing about Him that ever gets old, uh, that gets boring. I mean, it's uh, so good. Today we're going to finish up chapter 6 in our series going through the book of Hebrews. So if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn there. Last week, if you were here, we looked at what many see as one of the scariest texts in the Bible, where verses 4 through 6 is describing someone who uh, appears to be Christian, but they really aren't. Essentially says that you can nod your head in agreement with the facts of the gospel. You can taste of the goodness of God and you can even partake of the power of the Holy Spirit at some level and not be truly saved. You can do all those things and still at the end of the day have Jesus go, I never knew you. I'm sure those words when they were first read really shook up. The Hebrews that this letter was written to, which I know was the intention of the writer. He was giving them a wake-up call to reality, trying to shake them out of their sluggishness and complacency. Well, if the text last week was meant to shake those who aren't truly saved, the text that we're going to look at here, what he says next in chapter 6, was meant to motivate, inspire, and encourage those who really are. So let's stand together one more time in honor of God's word, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. So starting in verse 13, we're going to read through the end of the chapter. It says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. God, I am so grateful for your word this morning. Holy Spirit, I just ask you once again to come and guide us in in truth here, and Lord, that that truth would, would work itself deep down in us. Lord, I pray that you would uh, just bring us to, to higher levels of trust in you. This is that last song we sang, God, that we would trust you in everything. So, Lord, show yourself trustworthy this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The title of the message today is Second Wind, which is a term I'm sure a lot of you are familiar with, taken from that. A phenomenon that many run, long distance runners talk about where they uh, get to a certain place in their run where it feels like they can't go any further and they suddenly feel this sudden burst of energy that, that keeps them going uh, it, to help finish it. 
Scientists aren't really sure exactly what causes that. Some think it's the release of endorphins in the brain, and others say it's the oxygen levels balancing out due to all the, the, the lactic acid buildup in the muscles. Uh, regardless of, of how it happens, they just know it does. And so we have taken that same term and applied it to many other situations in life. And so uh, Second Wind now has its own definition, which is the first point there if you're following along in the bulletin. A Second Wind is renewed energy or strength to continue an undertaking. These Hebrews that this letter was written to, we've talked about how they were being persecuted and it got to the point where they were being, uh, becoming very discouraged and beginning to lose hope. And so the writer in this text here is explaining something to them in order to spur them on and to give them that second wind so they don't give up. And he does this by first pointing back to Abraham, who was not only one of the most important heroes of the Hebrew people, but he was also considered the father of their race. But even though he was probably more important to them culturally, from a cultural standpoint, than he would be for us today, what the writer says here has no less importance to us. In fact, the promises of Abraham that he's referring to that we are going to look at have even more meaning and more value to us as Christians than they do to anyone else simply by being Hebrew. So keep your finger here in Hebrew 6 and turn all the way back to Genesis 22. Because if you don't understand the story of Abraham, you're not going to understand the book of Hebrews. Abraham, of course, was originally called Abram before God changed his name and his story begins very early in human history. You have the fall of Adam and Eve and then right after that Noah and the great flood and then the Tower of Babel where God uh, mixes the languages and then right after that is a story of Abram. And in Genesis 12, 1, we'll get to 22 in a minute, Genesis 12, 1, God speaks to him and he says this, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. Now, to us in our culture today, this doesn't seem like a very big deal of him leaving his family and, and going off somewhere. I mean, we are at that uh, annual rite of passage right now where young men and women are leaving their families and going off to college. Leaving your family to go live somewhere else is, is not that big of a deal to us. I mean, it's, it's even encouraged. Go on, move out, go, go do your own thing. But to do that back then during the Old Testament times was considered to be certain suicide. Because the world at that time was a very dark, very pagan and lawless place. It was very dangerous where there were no laws. There was no one to appeal to. If, if you were done wrong, there was no 911. And so families back then stayed together for generations simply for the sake of survival. And so for God to say, leave the wealth and protection of your family, leave all that you know and go was an incredibly huge deal. But Abram obeys God, and he goes, taking his wife Sarah and his nephew with him. 
Things roll on, and in chapter 15, Abraham's thinking about the promise that God made, and essentially says, Lord, you, you said that, you were, that in me all the families of the earth was going to be blessed, but I don't see how that's going to happen because Sarah and I are getting old now. We don't have any children of our own, so, so how exactly is this going to work out? Are you doing this through uh, one of my distant relatives, or, or how? Because, I mean, time is ticking here. And this is where God brings him outside and tells him to look up into the night sky. And he says, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars in the sky. You will have a son who is going to come from you. I'm going to be true to my promise. And then we come to chapter 17. And Abraham is now 99 years old. It's been 25 years since he set out with his family, 25 years since God promised him those things, and nothing has happened. God comes to him again and reminds him again of the promise and says, I will make nations of you. Kings will come from you. He hears what God is saying, but in the back of his mind, he has to be struggling with some serious doubt. He's 99 years old. His wife, Sarah, is 89, way too old to be having any children. She is long past childbearing years. But God tells him not to give up hope because Sarah is going to be the one through whom his son was going to come. Well, he sends three angels to tell Abraham this, and Sarah's standing right outside the tent, and she hears this, and she begins to laugh. I mean, this is just sounds like a big joke to her. That's how ludicrous it was to think that she could actually bear a child at that age. So every, ever since they left their family, Abraham and Sarah have had this picture in their mind and in their heart that they had been looking forward to, that they had been living for, that they had been putting their hope in. But after 25 years of not seeing anything They both begin to think that the whole idea is just laughable. But God says, is anything too difficult for me? At this time next year, year, Sarah will have a son. And lo and behold, God's true to his word. And Sarah, at the age of 90 years old, bears a son named Isaac. You know, some people will... Uh, kind of try to explain that away and say, well, people lived a lot longer back then. 90 back then is not the same as being 90 now. But no, if you read the text, I mean, over and over it's repeating, and she was old, and he was old, and they were very old. I mean, they want to make the point, get the point across that this was physically impossible for her to have any more children, but God miraculously made it happen. And Abraham is ecstatic. It says when Isaac was weaned, he threw this enormous party. He was showing off his boy. He was so proud and so happy. Isaac grows and and Abraham just falls madly in love with his son. And then we get to this troubling account in Genesis 22. So let's look at this, starting in verse 1, because this is what's being referenced in Hebrews 6. It says, Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Take now your son, your only son whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. What in the world? I mean, is this some kind of sick joke? 
God has promised him this for 25 years and he's seen nothing. And finally the son comes and now he's taking him away. And it's not your son's going to die. No, it is you, dad, are going to be the one to kill him. Now it says that God did this to test Abraham. That does not mean that God wanted to see how Abraham was going to respond to this as if he didn't already know. God didn't test him because God wanted to know something. He tested him because Abraham needed to know something. The Bible mentions both in the Old and New Testaments this whole idea of God testing people. And I hear people today all the time, whenever they're going through a difficult thing in life, they'll say, oh, God must be testing me right now and think that, you know, they're trying to see whether they pass or fail. I think we have uh, generally the wrong idea when it, when it comes to this and what that actually means. We tend to think of it in terms of pass, fail, that, that God's trying to test me now to see if I'm going to pass this or fail this. And if I pass it, he's going to bless me. And if I fail it, I'm going to be punished. But the testing that the Bible talks about is, is not that kind of testing at all. It's referring to the process of refining metal in order to make it better. When metal was put through intense heat and melted it down so that the impurities would, would come out of it, that is what was called testing the metal, and it was done to make it better, to make it stronger. And so when the Bible talks about God testing someone, this is what it's referring to. It doesn't mean that he's giving them a test to see whether or not they're going to pass it. It means the next point in your notes there, leading someone through a situation that will make them better, make them stronger, and increase their faith. That's what it means to test, for God to test someone. That's exactly what he was doing here with Abraham. Let's read on, verse 5. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, and he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So the two of them walked on together. Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, son. And he said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the land for the burnt offering, my son. So the two of them walked on together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. And Abraham built the altar there and arranged the wood and bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. I have tried to get my mind around just how horrific this had to be for both of them. I mean, do we really think that Isaac just calmly and nonchalantly just walked up onto that wood and and laid down I don't think so I mean he sees what's going on he he's old enough now to know how sacrifices work I think it would be safe to say that Abraham probably even had to overpower Isaac in order to get him on that wood because after all it does say that he bound him. It means he tied his hands and his feet together so that he couldn't move. Why would he need to do that? Because Isaac would have wanted to move. 
any of us would have wanted to move if we'd have seen that we were about to be the ones on top of the wood that was about to be set on fire. This was not, I guarantee you, the calm, easy picture that we are all used to seeing with the cutouts up on the flannel board. This was a gut-wrenching, difficult ordeal for both of them. And I can just picture Isaac just backing away going, what are you doing, dad? And him taking him is going, trust me, son. He's like, no, dad, not me. There's got to be a lamb. And he's, he's wrestling him and he's tying him down. His son, just trust me. Just trust me. Just fighting and struggling this whole way, which is the same exact thing God the father was telling Abraham at the same exact time. Just trust me, son. Just trust me. Let's read on verse 10. Abraham stretched out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not stretch out your hand against the lad and do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham raised his eyes and looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide, as it is to this day. In the mount of the Lord, it will be provided. Now, what's written next is going to be huge as it relates to Hebrews 6. Let's read on. It says, Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, which is what we just read in Hebrews 6, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now, I know every one of us have probably heard or or heard a lesson on or read this story at least a hundred times. And it has traditionally been one of the few stories, even though all the stories in the Old Testament do this, it's traditionally been this one along with the story of the Passover and Exodus used to, to show was a representation or a foreshadow of the gospel. God provided a substitute to be sacrificed in place of Isaac, just as God provided Jesus to be the substitute to be sacrificed in place of us. And every time this story is taught, it seems that the focus tends to always be on the fact that Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. And the lesson there is that just like Abraham, we too need to love God more than anything else. And we need to be willing to sacrifice our greatest possession. But I think there's something in here that we've missed in that, something that I hadn't even noticed before, I don't think until I was actually reading this story just this week. You see, there's a reason why Abraham went that far, and it has more to do with the fact that he just loved God that much. Every time Abraham is referenced from here on out in the Bible, it is always highlighting his faith, his trust in God, but what exactly was it that he had faith in? I mean, yes, faith in God, but more specific than that, because Paul says that Abraham's faith was reckoned to him as righteousness, which means what he believed in, what he trusted, deemed him as right before God. There were a lot of people in the Old Testament that believed God, 
but they, it wasn't reckoned to them as righteousness. What made Abraham righteous then was the same thing that makes us righteous today. Abraham was looking forward to what Jesus would do. We look back to what Jesus has done. It's the same faith and the same belief, and we're going to see a picture of that here because this text tells us where his faith was. First of all, notice what it says there in verse 5 again. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey, and I and the lad will go over there, and we will worship and return to you. He didn't say, we will go worship and I will return back to you. No, he was insinuating that both of them were going to come back. And how did he know that? Because in verse 8, when Isaac asked him, where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham answered him and said, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. He knew that a substitute was going to be given His confidence and his trust in God was absolutely amazing. His faith was in the substitute. And so he takes Isaac up to the mountain and he looks around expecting, knowing that God was going to provide a substitute. But he doesn't see it. And so he builds the wood and he binds up his son and he lays him down on the wood and he looks around again expecting there to be a substitute. But he still doesn't see it, and so he goes forward. He goes even further. He takes out his knife, and he's raising it up all the while going, where is that substitute? I know it is going to show up. And he keeps going. He raises it up, and then right at the nick of time, God's timing is always perfect. He shows up, and lo and behold, the ram appears tangled in the brush. I don't believe that Abraham ever thought that he was going to have to sacrifice Isaac. He knew that God would provide the substitute. His faith, his hope during that whole thing was in the substitute. And how did he know? Because of the promise that God made to him, that his descendants would be as numerous as the stars in the sky. See, he knew that if Isaac were to die without having any children of his own, then that promise would not come to pass. God would not be true to his words, so he went through it all the way to the last second, knowing that God was going to come through. You see, he had believed in God's word earlier and he, he, he knew that it was going to come about so much that he even took matters into his own hands at one point to ensure that it was going to happen. Because God promised him this and he didn't have any children. And so he and Sarah were like, this isn't going to happen. The only way we're going to have a child, the only way God's word is going to come true is if you take my servant Hagar and have a child through her. And so they did it. But God rebuked him and said, no, you you don't have to take matters into your own hands. There is nothing impossible for me. Sarah's going to be the one to have the son. And so now he's here with Isaac and he goes, okay, I know there's going to be a substitute, but I'm not taking matters into my hands this time. And so I'm going to keep going. I'm laying him on the wood. I'm not going to stop it myself. I know God's going to come through. I'm taking out the knife. He went all the way trusting, knowing that God's promise was going to remain true. Now turn back over to Hebrews 6. I tie all this together here. Verse 13 again, he says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, 
saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. Now we have a cultural gap here because we don't really fully grasp today the meaning of a promise, an oath, and a covenant, not the way that that they took those to mean back then during the times of the Old Testament. To them, it meant a great deal to swear by something. And so in order to prove how reliable your word was, you would swear by something greater than yourself or having more value than yourself. And so if you were to say, I swear by my grandmother's grave, what that means is that if what you say doesn't turn out to be true, then whatever your grandmother has been remembered by up to this point, from now on, that is all gone and she is from now on remembered as a liar. Some even took it further than that. And so if you said, I swear by my children and what you said didn't come true, your children would have to be killed. It was like putting collateral down on your word or having a a cosigner to where if your word failed, whoever you swore by would then be liable. Verse 16 says, an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. So what that means is if you were to uh, say to someone, hey, I promise this is true. And they go, well, I don't believe you. And you're like, no, really, believe me, you can trust me. And they're like, I'm sorry, I, I just don't. I, don't. I don't know you that well. I just don't believe you. And then you go, okay, I swear by my family name. They go, oh, okay. Well, in that case, I do believe you. Because they knew that you would not risk the reputation of your family on a lie. And so it ended the dispute. So God made this promise to Abraham. And just in case the promise wasn't enough For Abraham to fully believe, God said, not only will I make the promise, but I'm also going to add an oath to it. I'm going to make an oath. And so I swear by, well, there's nothing greater than me. There's nothing more valuable than me. And so I swear by myself that I'll be true to my word. God was saying, my promise is so reliable that if it doesn't come true, my reputation as the highest and the greatest thing in all the universe can be considered worthless. And that's why Abraham kept going and going with Isaac because he knew that God's promise was going to be fulfilled. Abraham could say that he trusted God all day long, but what he did here was his trust in action. You know, a lot of people today say they trust God, but their life doesn't really reflect that in any way. It's not trust at all if it's not lived out, if it's not put in action. Abraham's was. Now watch this. This is where it all begins applying to us. Verse 17. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise, who is that? That's us. That's me and you. We are part of the multitude of descendants that God promised would come through him. Not because we have Hebrew blood running through our veins, but by the blood of Christ. He says, the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath. So about two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie. Those two things being the promise and the oath that he swore by himself. 
We who have taken refuge, that's us again, taken refuge in Christ, would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters the veil, talking about the veil of the temple that was ripped in two when Jesus died on the cross, signifying that the way for everyone to God had been open, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. What this means is that the promise given to Abraham was not just about his physical descendants. It wasn't about this natural race of people. The moment God made that promise, all those promises that he was referring to, he had you and me in mind. It was about all those that would be in Christ. We are the recipients of all the promises made to Abraham because Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises and we are in him. Jesus was the ultimate seed that God was referring to. He was the ultimate promised son. And so all who are in him now become the recipients of all of those promises. You might say, okay, well, that sounds pretty cool, but, but what does that mean for us today? I mean, what, what truth can we take from this and apply to the everyday struggles and temptations and, and frustrations and distractions that we face in life? Well, what this whole text is saying is that as trustworthy as God's promises were for Abraham, they're even more trustworthy for you who are in Christ. Because all of those promises are your promises. And so when God said to him, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you, he was not talking about national political Israel. He was talking about us. Those promises are ours. We are the recipients of those because we are in Christ who fulfilled all those promises. Not only those promises, but all those that are associated with what Jesus brings, all the the freedom and the healing and the restoration. Those promises are ours and they're even more reliable and more trustworthy because not only did he promise, not only did he swear by himself with an oath, but it was also sealed and secured with a blood covenant By Jesus on the cross. But here's the deal. Is it just me? Or do the promises of God. Seem to come pretty slow. I mean sometimes we hear people give these awesome testimonies. Like my marriage was over. We hated each other. Divorce papers were being written up. We weren't following God, but we decided to give him a try as one last resort, and he miraculously turned things around. We are now more in love with each other than we were on the day we met. Our children are now well-behaved. We have regular Bible studies together in the living room as a family every morning, and life is so perfect now, the grass in the yard just seems to cut itself now that we decide to follow Jesus. Or the guy who says, I was strung out on drugs and alcohol in prison. But I gave my life to Christ, and now I don't even have to read a Bible anymore because I got the whole thing memorized. I can just look at a person the right way, and they automatically get saved. That's what happens for those who follow Jesus. And then we hear those people, they walk off the stage, and you go, oh, my God, something is definitely wrong with me then because my life doesn't look anything like that. And we think we have just, we're just too far gone. 
maybe this Jesus stuff just isn't working out for me. Or maybe you've struggled with a particular sin for a long time and you come to the front and you cry and you sob and you vow to never do that again and you actually experience some freedom in that for a season. Believe that you have finally whipped this thing for good and then out of nowhere that thing pops right back up again and you fall in that same thing. Now you feel just so defeated, so hopeless. Abraham waited 25 years to see the promise of God, for his faith to become sight. I can't even imagine what that would have been like because, I mean, today we are such a right-now culture. Pretty much everything we want we can have with just the push of a button. We're spoiled by the speed by which we get results today. People back then rarely would even be able to experience speed of 10 miles an hour, tops. And we cuss out people for going 60 in the left-hand lane. We want to get there now. We want it fixed now. And it better not be difficult to get there either. I mean, if it means us having to come clean and being honest and open with others, then no way. That's too hard. That's too uncomfortable. I want it now without having to do any of that. I mean, am I the only one up here? Is this a lonely place for me to think that the promises of God, the healing, the restoration, the freedom, the wholeness, the victory just seem awfully slow to come? Anybody else think that at times too? I thought so. Yes. I mean, some of you have been praying for something for a very long time. Some of you have been enduring a very difficult marriage for a very long time, all the while watching these other marriages around you just get fixed and then falling in love with each other again. Some of you have been pretty lonely for a long time, and you know that a lot of that loneliness has to do with the fact that you decided to follow Jesus rather than the ways of this world. Boy, you're tempted. You know that, man, if I would just settle... If I would just do what everybody else does, I know I wouldn't be this lonely. I know I could find someone. You're tempted to compromise your principles, your values. Some days it gets so dark you just want to throw your hands up and give up. And I'm sure there's at least one of you. I know there's probably more. Seriously thought about ending it all for good. Just taking your own life. Because in your mind, you believe that that is the ultimate quick fix. If any of this applies to you this morning, I want you to hear that God is speaking to you directly and he is saying, don't lose hope. Don't give up. I have not forgotten about you. My word is still true. My promises are still for you. Lamentations 3, 22 and 23 says the Lord's love never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. They are new every morning. Which means God's not asking you to hang on for a whole year. He gives you strength. 
He gives you hope. He gives you a second win for today. When you wake up tomorrow, he'll give you what you need for that day. They are new every morning. And so my prayer today is that those of you who seem to have given up hope, that today that hope would be renewed. For those of you who just feel like you're at your wits end, you're just hanging on by a thread, thinking about giving up, that today God would would give you that second wind and blow that new wind in your sails to keep going. For those of you who maybe you've given in to the the impatience already and the hopelessness, and so you've decided this God way isn't working. I'm going to try this way. Basically, turn your back on God. I'm going to tell you this morning, he's calling you back. He's saying, my mercies and my compassions are just as new for you as well. Trust me. God's saying, trust me. That's the bottom line. I told you a hundred times, I believe the highest level we can attain in any relationship is trust. God's asking us to trust him today. When we do, we find that second wind to keep going. Let's pray. God, great is your faithfulness. I pray that today that would be more than just an old hymn that we sing. I pray that for some in here today, God, that really need it, that it would become real. That it would not become something they just know about, but something that they really know to be true for them. God, I'm just crying out to you for those who seem to have lost hope this morning, seem to be at the end of their rope. God, I pray that they would just trust you to the point where they could just let go of that rope and let you catch them. God, those that do need new wind in their sails this morning to keep going, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just blow that. Lord, forgive us when we think that your way isn't going to work, that your way isn't good enough. Lord, refine us to where our trust in you is stronger than it ever has been. Lord, I pray for some that have just been waiting for so long that you've been taken through that refinement for so long God, even today, that their, their faith will become sight, that they will experience that freedom that they've been hoping for, that they would experience that, that restoration that they have been hoping for. Or let them see your promises coming true today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.